So uh, here's a question to start this. Are miracles possible? Well, we think they are, of course, being followers of the Lord. Um, Has science, and this is a common view um, that I run into a lot, has science disproven somehow the possibility of miracles? Well, it's kind of an, uh, an argument from ignorance. Some people say, well, yes, of course. How possibly could science disprove the existence of miracles? Science does the opposite. It doesn't prove that miracles have taken place necessarily, but it it simply defines what a miracle is. Science is the investigation of natural causes for natural events on physical objects, right? Uh, So if something happens outside of the natural processes or overriding the natural processes, we call it a miracle. So science, by its own admission, would say, by just saying miracles are not possible, it's kind of like this. My favorite philosopher is Alvin Plantinga. Um, He's the chairman of the philosophy department in Notre Dame. And he says, you know, for science to say that miracles are not possible is simply them to say, if, if we can't prove it by science then it doesn't exist. Oh, really? Uh, you can't prove it by science, it doesn't exist. Well, I guess then thoughts don't exist. How much does a thought weigh? How much space does a thought take up? But if everything is physical and nothing happens except by physical means, then the greatest miracle of all is the existence of the universe itself because almost everybody would agree that the universe came into existence from nothing. It can have come into existence by natural law because there were no natural laws before the universe came into existence. Natural laws just describe what the universe does. But before the universe was there, if it can't come into existence, you can't explain anything by itself. You can't explain nature by nature. You can't explain the universe by the universe. So whatever caused the universe to come into existence has to be outside of nature. You know what we have a word for that? It's called supernatural. So we have to go by the evidence. A lot of the reported miracles are fake, no doubt. Maybe the vast majority of them. But we're only going to focus on one tonight. Uh, I had a student at ACA. I teach junior and senior Bible and, of course, a lot of apologetics with that, the defending of the faith, trying to get them ready for college um, and life. And I had a student that graduated last year, actually two years ago, come back into the classroom. He's kind of a genius. And he was when he was in school, and he's a chemistry major uh, at the University of Alabama. Uh, his name's David Barrett. And, I, you know, he came back in to talk to the students and let them know how important it was that they hang on every word that I speak. Um, so I was glad to have him there. And, uh, but he kind of surprised me. I mean, he's a, he's a really smart guy. He's a really great chemistry guy. He loves all that. And he said, you know, I've come down to believe one thing. It's only one thing that really matters. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if Jesus rose from the dead, game over, right? So we're going to see a couple of things tonight. First of all, I want to make you understand this. <clears throat> The, the first disciples had anything but blind faith. Right? God gave us Christianity 
based on evidence. So, um, I want to ask you a question before we go to the next slide. I'm almost able to see that. I'm supposed to be able to see my next slide back there, and it's so helpful to know where I'm going. Um, I want to ask you a theological question as Christians, and I've asked this all over the world, literally, and very few bodies of believers know the answer to this. How does the resurrection of Jesus connect with your salvation? What is the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and your salvation? Now, this is, you're welcome to answer. You're welcome to stop me anytime and ask a question too. I'm used to classroom stuff, so. Um, Anybody? Want to give it a shot? Huh? Right, he's the firstborn from the dead, which means he's not the first person to rise from the dead. It means he's the most important person to rise from the dead. Um, Huh? If he didn't rise Okay, that's a really good thought. And she said, if he didn't rise from the dead to overcome death, we won't. Um, Let me show you the next slide here. Uh, This is how important the resurrection of Christ is. If you believe in your heart, or I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, of course... That's one connection. That's not the one I'm looking for, but the, first, the kind of the most bottom line question is you have to believe it to be saved. Right? So I'm concerned about all the people that think they are Christians who have no idea about the resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? Of course, I mean, read the verse. Uh, when you read the, if you read Acts and read every sermon that the apostles preached in the book of Acts, they only preach three things. Over and over again. Deity of, of Jesus. He's God. He died. He rose again. Deity, death, resurrection. Over and over and over again. That was the message of the early church. That was the message right out of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So, pretty important there. Um, here's the answer to the question, though. If Christ... And you, you started by quoting this verse, so I thought it was great. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation. We have nothing to talk about if Jesus is not raised from the dead. All we have is an ethical system to live by. Love your neighbor as yourself, which of course nobody can do. And so is your faith. And then he says, we are found to be false witnesses. And the dot, dot, dot there after that means, he says, because we have testified that God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are witnesses of that. And then he says, get this, here's the bottom line. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't pay for your sins. That's the connection. If I commit a crime, and uh, like I hope this guy gets caught for his, I don't know how they would, the world they would do that, but um, I hope he spends a long time paying his debt to society. But if he does, how do you know that his debt to society has been paid? He gets out of jail, right? Yeah, he gets out of prison. If Jesus is paying the debt for our sins, which is death, separation from God, then how do we know he's paid enough? He said on the cross, it's finished. How do we know it's finished? He's out of jail. 
that make sense? He's raised from the dead. So that's the key here. Um, and I'm going to skip a couple of these just for the sake of time. Um, these are the sermons and acts I was talking about. Now, we want to look tonight at the historical evidence. We're going to, we're going to treat the Bible like any other book and bring in a lot of other books outside of the Bible. And we're going to see if there's really any real hard evidence. Is it just blind faith? The disciples said they saw Jesus after He was risen from the dead, and they knew He was dead. They knew where He was buried. The tomb was empty. And they saw Him. And it took Him quite a while to convince them that He was actually risen from the dead. Even after they saw Him, they didn't believe. Um, of course, they did, and, and, and He did. He convinced them. Acts 1.3 says, by many infallible proofs. But if you just look at this from an historical standpoint, the, the job of historian, my undergraduate degree was in history and political science, so I love history. The job of an historian is to get the facts, and then from those facts, make reasonable assertions as to what really happened. I mean, think about it. How do you know that George Washington was really the first president? I mean, really. Were you there? So you don't really know that, do you? Um, it could be fake news. <laughs> but I have every comment. I have no reason to doubt that George Washington was there because was president because we have documents, right? And we have artifacts. We have letters that he wrote and were written to him. We have records, documents, but it's all documents and a few paintings, right? But nobody doubts that. And they have no reason to doubt it. So that's the way that historians work. So I'm going to show you what the historical criteria is. This is how it works for secular history, any kind of history, including Jesus' history. We need multiple independent sources. If I've only got one guy or one source telling me something happened 2,000 years ago, let's say, just for a round number there, uh, well, one guy, but if I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, that's most, most historians would be thrilled to get three independent sources. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Most people think of the Gospels as one thing. They think, the Bible, well, we got the Bible. No, 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 no. The Bible has how many Gospels? Four. Did they all write from the same place? Do they all write at the same time? They're independent then. Now they went through the same common experiences, except for Luke and Mark and Paul and James. They didn't get in a room and collude and make up the story. You know what cops do when they come to a, this, a scene of a crime? Immediately they separate the witnesses because they don't want them to be getting together and colluding. That's why when you read the New Testament, there are differences in details. That's what you want. If it, everyone said exactly the same thing, exactly the same way, we throw up our hands and say, well, it's obvious they got together and made it up. That's not what happened. You have four just in the Gospels alone, but you have a lot more than that. We'll get to some of those later. Um, okay, so the second thing you want is eyewitness testimony. Were they actually there? A lot of street views, although it's in, in scholarly world, in the scholarly world, nobody thinks that the New Testament was not written by eyewitnesses. 
Um, that's the whole point of being an apostle. The whole point of being an apostle is you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. If you didn't see him, you're not qualified. Um, and the point of that is God wanted eyewitness testimony to verify the things that they said about Jesus. <clears throat> and we've got that. We've got eyewitness testimony. Um, so the next thing is, I know I have to click this twice, embarrassing details. Historians think, and I do too, if you read something written and somebody just completely embarrasses himself in writing, let's say we've got a 2,000-year-old document, and somebody says, I was an idiot, I was terrible, I did this, and it really makes me look bad, but it's the truth. Do people generally make up lies to make themselves look bad? No, of course not. We make up lies to make ourselves look good, right? When I was a kid, I told everybody I was half Apache Indian. <clears throat> I've changed that now. Of course, I don't, I don't really say that anymore. Um, last couple of years, I haven't done uh, But anyway, how about the women being the first ones to the empty tomb? Did that help the case? No. It hurt the case. Number one, it made the disciples who were hiding for fear of their own lives look like cowards. The only reason to put it in there is it happened. The second negative about, the, about including the women as the first eyewitnesses, you know, women were not allowed to testify in court in the first century because the general, I'm sorry, ladies, the general opinion was they were way too emotional and high-strung and kind of natural-born liars. Well, we know it's the opposite now, don't we? That it's the men that have the bigger problem. <laughs> but in that, there's no reason for the, for the writers of the, of the Gospels to make the women the first eyewitnesses unless they were. They're just, they're just telling you like it was. And they were there to know. So there are a lot more than that. Would, would Peter have written his own denial of Jesus with a curse? I don't think so. I think whoever wrote all those four Gospels, Mark is basically the Gospel of Peter, um, would never have had the courage to write that without Peter's permission. So you've got the, these are historical criteria we would also apply to George Washington or whoever else we're trying to find the history on. Um, so the next one is enemy attestation. What that means is if your enemy inadvertently agrees with you that what you're saying is true, is probably true, right? What did the, what did the, who were the enemies at this point? So if Jesus is crucified in the first century, his enemies would be, first of all, the Pharisees, the Jewish hierarchy of the day, and then the Roman government who actually crucified him, right? The last thing in the world they wanted from the Roman perspective, they did not want trouble. They just wanted peace as long as they got their money. The Jews, of course, were very threatened by Jesus. They didn't want to lose their following. They didn't want to lose their authority over the Jewish people. So they hated Jesus. They're the ones who brought him to the Romans because they couldn't execute him themselves. The Romans didn't allow for Jews to execute their own criminals. So if the tomb had not been empty, think about this. We'll, we'll get the back kind of full circle of this. If Jesus' tomb had not been empty, and if nobody knew where the tomb was, and if he wasn't buried in a tomb, it's kind of a moot point anyway. But if the enemies say the disciples stole the body, which is exactly what they said, 
the guard, Roman guards said that, that the, while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. A little problem there, right? They were sleeping and they saw the disciples in their sleep steal the body and didn't do anything about it. Okay, that's, that's ridiculous. Huh? Couldn't hear stone no, couldn't hear the stone being moved, and those poor little disciples who were scared to death anyway snuck in there and did it. My point is this. If the tomb hadn't been empty, they would have, there would have been no case. They wouldn't have agreed on anything. But the enemies, in trying to explain why the tomb was empty, agreed that the tomb was empty. Make sense? All right, so we've got that. Uh, and then finally, whoops. Okay, here we go. External corroboration. Now, this is my favorite one. External corroboration means if you're doing history, we've got four independent sources here, but is that all we've got? Are there any facts surrounding the whole events there that we can corroborate with outside information? Well, uh, when you do that, I'm gonna, I'll come to these, I'll come back to these. This slide presentation for this is not probably in the best order, but when you do, when you put all this together, you have five minimal facts of history. I'm going to give you these five. You don't need the Bible to know any of them. Let me say it again. You don't need the Bible to know anything I'm about to show you. Almost every historian will agree to these five. I heard a debate between an apologist, a guy named William Lane Craig, and a, a college professor from the University of Berkeley, California. Uh, University of California, Berkeley who got his doctorate, he's, just, he's an atheist, but he got his doctorate on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, he didn't believe in the resurrection, but he agreed to every one of these facts because he can't not. You don't need the Bible to know these. Almost every historian today would agree with them. They, would, they still don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. So the first one is Jesus of Nazareth is really a historical person. Um... He's not a myth. No, but there are, there are about, there are, in all the historians I have read, I found two that think Jesus may not have really lived. And those guys are kind of considered among the historical community of real wackos. And they're, they're making money. You write a book, I don't think Jesus lived, you're going to make money. People eat it up. But his, historians, the consensus of history, let me give you, let me give you this. The, the Mac Daddy, if you want to really become a, an expert on the resurrection of Jesus, you need to study a guy named Gary Habermas. He's from Liberty University, still the chairman of the philosophy department there. He collected 3,000, get this, 3,000 articles from historians of all stripes, French, German, American, and British, most of whom were not believers, and just said, let's see what they all say about the facts surrounding the death and burial of Jesus. They all agreed on these five facts. At least 99% of them, let's say. But this is the historical consensus that I'm giving you of the scholarly world. It's nothing, this isn't Christian stuff. Um, so fact number two, he was crucified under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, by the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. No, nobody disagrees with that. Virtually nobody disagrees with that. He's a real guy. He was crucified by Pilate. Um, fact number three, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is interesting. Historians actually credit 
not, not theologians necessarily, but historians credit the Bible with being exactly right on this. All four Gospels mention that Joseph, a rich man who owned a tomb in Jerusalem, there's lots of them, you can go visit them now, uh, take the tours of Jerusalem, you'll see lots of tombs there, built in caves, different types of tombs, depending on how much money you had. Joseph of Arimathea is credible. Number one, he's embarrassing. You know, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the ruling judges that condemned Jesus to death. So here's one of their own, the worst enemies at the time they thought that they had, going to beg for the body of Jesus while the disciples were hiding. He was braver than them. Well, not only was a member of the Sanhedrin then, the Sanhedrin, this is God's irony, the ruling judges, they're responsible for one thing, mainly observing the law. We're going to make sure that the Jews obey the law and observe the law. They were fighting even the Romans. We've got to obey the law. And so when they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate, that's what they said. We have a law. And by our law, this man ought to die because he's made himself equal with God. And Caesar didn't care about that. But when they said he may call himself a king, Caesar, I mean, Pilate had to take notice of that. And so the same Sanhedrin that tried to get the law fulfilled to put Jesus to death also had to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter, I think it's 23, 22, or 22, 23. I may have it on here on the slide. 22 or 23. You have to bury your dead before nightfall or the whole land will be defiled. That's in the law. So the same people that had him crucified had to make sure he got buried. And so perfect, Joseph of Arimathea, who the gospel tells us was a believer, stepped up and said, I've got a tomb, it's never been used, I'll give him this one. Well, he didn't need it for long. So, you know, like S.M. Lockery said, he wasn't going to stay there very long, a borrowed tomb would do fine. Um, So that's a historical fact. About 85% of historians agree. And it dropped from 99 to 85 because if he's buried in the tomb and the tomb is found empty, which is the next fact, you have to explain it. Who moved the stone? Who took the body? Now, how do I know the tomb was... I'm more sure about this than I am... I mean, just from a historian standpoint... I am absolutely sure the tomb was found empty. I mean, I have faith for that. He had to be because Jesus raised him the dead. But let me tell you from a historical standpoint why this has to be so. Imagine this. Was Jesus crucified? What city was Jesus crucified in? Jerusalem. All right, so he's crucified in Jerusalem at the time of the year when the population of Jerusalem had tripled because of Passover. I mean, there was only elbow room. Everybody knew, here's this Jewish rabbi who's got himself crucified. And so was the, was the crucifixion private and secret or was it a public event? They marched him through town. That was part of the point, by the way, of crucifixion, making it public. So you have a public death of Jesus that most everybody knows about. Forty days later, a month and ten days later, Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and says, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of these things. All right, let's suppose you're there and you think, wait a minute, that's the same guy I saw getting crucified and his tomb is a quarter of a mile away. Are you going to go look? 
Of course you are. Somebody did, I promise you. Multitudes did, I think, but enough of them did that if the tomb had not been empty, would anybody have believed? No. Including the disciples. Including the apostles. The tomb had to be empty for anybody to believe. If the tomb had not been empty, Christianity would have never... You, I'll say it this way. If the tomb had not been empty, you and I would have never heard of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He would have been lost in history. You know, the Romans crucified millions, we probably, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, but probably millions of people. I'll name one, you name one. Jesus. Huh? Right, we don't know who they were. Um, and the only reason we know about them is because of Jesus. Now, if you know your history pretty well, you could probably name one or two. Spartacus. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said he had a couple friends that got crucified and he got one of them down, but he died anyway. Um, we would never have heard of Jesus if the tomb had not been found empty. Nobody would have believed in resurrection without an empty tomb. That's the whole point. Um, so, whoops, I've got to go back one. Now I've got to start over. I love PowerPoint. Okay. I did it again. Can you believe that? I'm just going to tell you. Forget it. Um, the fact number five is the disciples truly believed. This is really important. It's obvious from an historian's standpoint the disciples were not faking it. They really believed that they had seen the risen Christ. How do I know that? How do I know that the disciples really believed they saw the risen Christ? They died for it, sure. Nobody makes up a lie and then dies for it. Liars make poor martyrs. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but don't suicide bombers die for what they believe in? Of course they do. But they don't know whether or not it's true in a factual sense. They have faith. And that's all they have, blind faith. The disciples didn't have blind faith. They knew they were in a position to know for a fact by their own experience if Jesus was risen from the dead or not. So their faith was not a result. Their, 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 their experience of seeing the risen Christ was not a result of some maniacal kind of psychological blind faith. Their faith was a result of their experience. That's important. And every historian that I read and with Gary Habermas's collection, they all, they all agree. Disciples really, yeah, nobody thinks they faked it. You don't start a new religion and then say, boy, I get to die for it. I mean, you're starting a new religion just like you start anything, money or girls, right? <laughs> and they didn't get either one. So this is Tacitus. Tacitus is that extra source I was showing you or telling you about. We got the four Gospels as evidence, eyewitness evidence, but then we've got external corroboration for what the disciples said. Tacitus is a Roman historian. He's not a Christian at all. He didn't live exactly then. He lived from 56 A.D. to 120 A.D. And uh, he wrote during the time, or right after the time of Nero, who burned down Rome and then killed Christians to blame for it. Um, and so Tacitus is talking about that in his annals, um, and so he says, therefore to squelch the rumor, 
Nero created scapegoats and subjected them to the most refined tortures, those whom the common people call Christians. Hated for their abominable crimes, you can tell he's not a friend of Christianity, hated for their abominable crimes, their name comes from Christ who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator, Pontius Pilate, suppressed for the moment the deadly superstition. What's the deadly superstition? Resurrection. Broke out again, not only in Judea, but also in the city of Rome. Now Tacitus is Roman. He's not a Christian. He's not exactly at the time, but he's really close to the time. And he's just confirmed... Three of the facts, historical facts. Jesus was a real person. He was crucified under Pilate. And the disciples really believed God raised him from the dead. Um, So we can move on to the Jewish historian, not a Christian. He was there at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then went to work for the Romans. He's considered probably the most meticulous, maybe the best historian. Here's what he says. At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following, both among the Jews and among many of the Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. Um, Again, Jesus is a real person. Jesus died on the cross under Pontius Pilate. His friends didn't desert him. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on this one for the sake of time. I'll try to get you out at about 7, 15, or 20. Uh, here's what historians say about this. These are not Christians. This is one of, these are the leading historians I found among Gary Habermas's collection. John A.T. Robertson, notice historian of Cambridge University in England, says, all the historical tests are past. The burial of Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and the empty tomb are historical facts. He's not a believer, but he agrees with the history because he's a good historian. Um, this, is the, this is it, 21, 22, and 23. This is why Josephus had to get him buried. Okay, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If you're taking notes, write that down. I won't read it. Um, here's Michael Grant, He's skeptic. He's not, he's not a Christian, not a believer. Trinity College and professor at Edinburgh University. Here's what he says. If we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. Okay. Um, now... So this is the one I think it is. Fact number five of the minimal facts, and this is the one I left out before, but it's back up here. The disciples really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They knew for a fact as eyewitnesses what that occurred. They all died for what they refused to deny that they knew. We believe because they did. Think about it. We, we have heard of Jesus because they believed. And we believe their words. If you're you're reading the Bible and you believe it's true, you believe what they said. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're false, we're liars. Because we said that we've seen him. And we're willing to die for that. Um, All right. 
Here's my favorite one. This is Paula Fredrickson. If you ever listen to her, it's really neat to, to listen to her. She's got that real Boston accent. I was born in Boston. Um, lost my accent. I got over it. Um, but I still love the Boston pack the cat. So Paula Fredrickson says, I can still speak Boston. Um, All the historical evidence we have attests to their conviction that they saw the risen Jesus. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. She's not not willing to go that far. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I know as a historian they saw something. And they were convinced (laughs) that they really believed it. That Jesus had risen from the dead. So History, again, is the explanation of the known facts. How are we going to explain this stuff? Think about the facts again. Jesus is real, crucified under Pilate, buried in a tomb. Tomb was found empty. Disciples really believed God raised him from the dead. Now, if you're going to explain all that stuff and write the history, you have to have explanatory power. In other words, it has to be plausible. You can't leave something out, and that's called explanatory scope. You have to include all the facts. You can't, you can't give an explanation that leaves something out. Okay, you explain this one, but not this one. Follow me? We'll see that. So, if that's the case, what are the alternative theories? Throughout the years, what are the alternatives? How are you going to explain that stuff? Well, you could say there, there are two classes here. First, you have the conspiracy theories. There are only two of them. Number one, the disciples stole the body. That was the original. Now, which fact, think about it, which historical fact, you be the detective here, which historical fact does that not account for? This is easy. Huh? I'm sorry? Well, yeah, I think that's a good point. They, I mean, it's pretty implausible to believe they could steal the body from the Romans. But how about this? If the disciples had stolen the body, would they know that the resurrection story was fake? So would they have believed God raised him from the dead? If they didn't believe, would they have died for what they didn't believe? Of course not. It doesn't account for one of the basic historical facts. So it can't be true. The second one is, the later disciples invented the Jesus myth. Oh boy. Nobody much believes that anymore. You still hear it, from, it's, but it's an argument from ignorance. The consensus of history is, we know that the, that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses, and here's the killer. If it was written by eyewitnesses, who was it written to? More eyewitnesses. Everybody was there. The city was packed. How long would it have taken 30 or 40 years later, somebody to write this gospel and all the eyewitnesses? That's why Paul says... There are 500 people that saw him. Go ask them. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Well, what if there were 500 people who were there at the time who never heard of him? Then they would have discredited this. You have a corrective effect. If you're writing as an eyewitness, you're also writing two eyewitnesses. And of course, if you're an eyewitness, you have to write it before you're dead. And if you're not dead, probably others are not either. It's, it's just ludicrous to think that later disciples invented the myth. Here, here's the problem with that. How were there later disciples if nobody believed it to start with? You, you don't have any later disciples. Christianity could never have gotten off the ground with that one sermon, God raised Jesus from the dead, preached in the place where he was crucified if there was no credibility to it. 
So then you have some natural explanations. The first one that's never used anymore is called the swoon theory. It was really popular in the late, 18, the late 1700s, early 1800s. And if you're a Princess Bride fan, anybody like Princess Bride besides me? Come on, fess up. Invitation time. You'll get a kick out of it. So the swoon theory is Jesus wasn't dead. He was just mostly dead. Mostly dead all day, right? Um, go back and watch Princess Bride if you forgot if the spirit, that. If the spirit decided to crucify Yeah. Um, so that, that theory would ask you to believe that Jesus was scourged, which most crucifixion vic- victims were not because they didn't have time for that. Pilate thought that would suffice instead of the crucifixion. And you know the story. I'm sure most of you are familiar with what happened to Jesus when he was scourged. So he's half bled to death before he ever got there. That's why he couldn't carry his cross all the way. He had to have help. And then they put him on the cross with professional executioners whose job was to make sure he was dead. And they know what dead means. And if you die on the cross, you die from suffocation eventually because you're so weak and you're bled out and you can't push up on the nails to breathe. It's too painful and you don't have the energy. So if Jesus had not pushed up for 15 or 20 minutes... He's dead. When Joseph of Arimathea went to beg the body, what question did Pilate have? Is he dead already? We must have forgotten he had him scourged. And so he sent sent one of his own soldiers back to make sure he was dead. Even the Romans made sure he was dead. If he wasn't dead, surely somebody at the time, think about it. So he's he's wrapped in suffocating, what would have been if he was alive, suffocating linen, the burial procedures, put in a tomb with no medical attention for three days, and then he somehow rolls a stone away, comes out and looks good enough to convince people he's raised from the dead. If you, can, if you want to believe that, okay. But almost nobody does now. They just don't use it anymore. This doesn't make any sense. How about this one? The women went to the wrong tomb. Why were the women upset when the tomb was empty? Is it because they, were, they weren't hallelujah. They weren't dancing around and saying, oh boy, Jesus is risen from the dead. They were upset. Where have you taken him? They knew where he was. They're, the whole point was, it says specifically in the Gospels, they followed him. What did they take with them when they went to the tomb? More wrapping and spices. The reason they had to do that was because Jesus as a criminal, even though he was buried in a tomb, could not have a public funeral. So the funeral had to be inside the tomb. Pretty stinky. That's why the, all the spices... So when they get there, if they don't, the Jews thought, if they don't get there and have the funeral in three days, the soul will leave because the body becomes unrecognizable. That's why they're upset. Where have you taken him? We've got to get this funeral done. We've got to do this right. He was our hero. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. And I've never really read any credible historians that agree with that. Um, that's why it's an historical fact that by all these historians, the tomb was empty. But this doesn't work. Jesus was never buried in Joseph's tomb. Well, how would they know that? It's, they don't, of course. It's just a, anything but the facts. And then the, the, this is the one I hear the most, honestly. This is the most used explanation for all those five facts. The last one, no kidding. Gerd Ludemann is a German uh, historian. He's an atheist. And he agrees with all five historical facts because he has to here's his explanation all the disciples had hallucinations now think about it 
the women had a hallucination. Later on, the disciples, 1 Peter and then 7 and then, or 11 and, and then, or 10 and then 11 and then 7 later, they all had hallucinations. The same hallucination at a different place and a different time. Then 500 together had the same hallucination. Some having the hallucinations that they didn't know why they were having hallucinations. Oh, yeah. Um, and then James, the, the physical brother of Jesus, the stepbrother of Jesus, who never believed in Jesus at all. He had no... I mean, you have to, to have a hallucination, you have some kind of predisposition to have it. He certainly would have never had a predisposition to believe his brother was raised from the dead. But he did believe it. And he wrote a book in the Bible by his own name. Uh, and then Paul, same hallucination. It's really unbelievable to think somebody would believe that. That all these people, different times, they had the same hallucination that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. There, there, are, you know, there are some psychologists who want to try to make you think Paul felt really guilty about killing all those Christians. Yeah, right. Um, okay. So, if, if these alternative theories don't work, then you have a fifth explanation. God raised Jesus from the dead. If he did, the tomb would have been empty. And if the tomb had not been empty, we would have never heard of him. If he did, the disciples would have seen the risen Christ, which is what they believed. If he did, they would have really believed that God raised him from the dead, which is an historical fact. Now, this is the closing thing here, but um, before I say this, let me just say this. Um, this all really is a moral issue. It's an issue about right and wrong, your right and your wrong, and my right and my wrong what we call sin, right? Most atheists that I know still believe in some kind of morality. They believe they're good people. Uh, I'm a good person even though I don't believe in God. You don't have to believe in God to be good. But they still believe in some sort of a moral standard. Let me give you a little equation here. If there is such a thing as morality, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that you should or you shouldn't do this? We mean that we have responsibilities towards each other. That's really all it means. And God, if you're a believer in God. But even if you don't believe in God, if you say, I'm a good person, what you mean is I'm responsible in my behavior for other people. Agree? Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. All those things affect other people. When you sin, you sin against somebody. Well, if there is such a thing then as right and wrong and morality... It's meaningless unless there is... Here's the equation. Morality equals responsibility. Take responsibility for your actions. If there's such a thing as responsibility, there has to be accountability. If there's no accountability, then you're not responsible. Does that make sense? If, nobody, if, if there's nobody ever says, let's take a test... You don't, it doesn't matter if you know it or not. If nobody ever... If, I mean, you're accountable for your actions. Not only are you responsible for your actions, you're accountable for your actions. And most people would agree with that. If there is such a thing as accountability, here's the last one, there has to be judgment. 
The point is this. This is basically, by the way, another Jewish concept that we wouldn't have without the Old Testament and Judaism. The concept is this. If I do wrong, I would debt. Right? You can't just stop. Yeah, I'm going to steal your car, um, but I won't do it anymore. I'm not going to steal any more of your cars. Does that settle it? Is that good? Am I good now? I'm not going to kill anybody else. Right? If you sin against somebody, you owe a debt. That's why we have prisons. We, we inherently know that. If there is a God, which is the only basis for any kind of objective, actual morality, actual right and wrong, and we sin, we owe Him a debt. Hence, judgment. Well, it boils down to two things. Either we've got to pay for our sins, or He does. Jesus did. If He's not risen from the dead, your faith is worthless. What did it say? You're still in your sins. So that's why this resurrection thing is so tied. We've come full, full circle now. And the implications of the resurrection are our salvation in Christ is assured. I think I did this. When we, remember we studied Romans four years ago. You probably won't remember this. But I ask you, how many of you know Romans 3.23? Let's say it. For all... Oh. Keep going. You don't know verse 24? It's the same sentence. Remember that? Verse 24 says this. And are justified freely by the grace given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The worst news and the best news, same sentence, and we only know half of it? Come on. Our salvation is assured because Jesus has risen from the dead. If Jesus has risen from the dead, He's exactly who He says He is, which is exactly what I prayed on September the 5th, 1972 about 2.30 in the morning. Jesus is exactly who He says He was. You know, every time Jesus spoke about His death, He spoke about His resurrection. Every single time. I'm going to die, but three days later I'm going to raise from death. Since we have been regenerated or born again with incorruptible seed, we too have eternal life. In Christ, we have, like, it's just exactly what you said earlier. If Jesus is raised from the dead, we can be too, because we have His genetics spiritually. We do. We have His spiritual genetics. And then, what you do now, what you and I both do now, has eternal consequences. There really is a forever I had a guy call me at 3 o'clock in the morning when I lived in Atlanta. I was a youth pastor in Atlanta. 1978, I'm thinking. Somewhere around there. And uh, the reason he called me, Atlanta's got a big phone book about that big. And I, my last name starts with A, and I was the first reverend in the phone book. 3 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. Um, he says, I just wanted to call a reverend and tell him I'm about to commit suicide. I'm awake. 
And so he said, I've got my gun here. I just thought it, I should tell somebody. And so I tried to get him, what's your name, what's your address, and to get you some help. No, that didn't work. And I said, Lord, what am I going to say to this guy? Popped in my head. I said, you can't. He said, what do you mean I can't? You can't. So what you want to do, here's what I said to him, what you want to do is end it all, right? Of course. You can't. You're, you cannot end it all. There's the most important part of you. I didn't say this, but I didn't know to say it at the time. But basically, I said, you're going to be someplace forever. You're not going to end your problems this way. Your life may be terrible right now. It may be a train wreck right now. It can get worse. Uh, and I don't know whether he ever, we stayed on the phone an hour. I don't know whether he ever committed suicide or not because he wouldn't give me his number and we didn't have all this cell phone stuff where you could just call him back. Um, the most important part of you and me is not physical. Are you, a, are you a something or a someone? Are you a person? The philosophers call it the ghost in the machine. You have a body which kind of does act like a biological machine. But that's not who you are. That's not, who, who's your, that's not your thoughts. You're not your brain. Your brain may transmit the thoughts, but the brain doesn't hold the thoughts. The thoughts are immaterial. The information itself, including your DNA, is immaterial. So your soul, your personhood, is something that is not physical, and it's something that, if it's not physical, it's not subject to physical death. It'll be someplace forever. Death doesn't mean annihilation. It means separation. When you die, your body and soul are separated. So the good news is, in Christ, because He has eternal life, He has given us eternal life. We have His genetics. And the someplace we'll be forever is with Him. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, make sure you sign up if you want a newsletter. I try to do some apologetic information. And... Uh, let you know what's going on in church for skeptics. So I'd appreciate it. Yes, 12.30 Sunday afternoon. Yes, so we're filming. i got to get up at daylight Saturday to film two more programs. This season's all, new, all Old Testament stuff. So um, the credibility of the Old Testament. So we're on, i got to film episode six this Saturday. And seven maybe, if I can last that long. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time. Thank you for a great, great... Uh, audience here and uh, the participation. I pray you'd bless this church, bless Michael. So appreciative of him, Lord, and his leadership here. And I pray that you'd bless this ministry in Jesus' name. Amen.